Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Luke 10, 25-37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who, has, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastor Roger and pastoral team, just want to say thank you for asking me and inviting me to, uh, to preach this morning. I've taught some Bible classes here at Generation, but this is my first time ever preaching, so I'm a bit nervous. Actually, this is my second time. I just preached the first service, so <laughs> I'm much going to be much more, you know, much better. Um, for those of you I've not met, I'm Michael Lepine. Um, I'm married to, 14 years married to Courtney, who just read our scripture this morning, and we have three little boys, Josiah, Jax, and Joel, and I've also been going to this church um, for quite a while, actually since I was a kid, otherwise known as the mid-90s. So let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can come together and that we can meet um, and that we are free to meet, Lord. A lot of other places in the world don't have that freedom that we have right now that we're experiencing. Help us not to take it for granted. And Holy Spirit, please... Um, Give me a calm and speak through me and speak to all of us in your word, Lord. You be glorified this morning and scatter seed on all of our hearts through your word. In your name, amen. So we're in a series looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And these are stories that Jesus would tell to people who, were listen, who would listen. They're stories explaining the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God. Um, and one amazing, miraculous thing to me is that through the decades, the centuries, the millennia that have passed since these stories were first spoken, the durability and longevity 
of the word of these stories. It's amazing to me. Kingdoms and empires like the one that we live in today, they've come and gone, and people groups and philosophical movements and cultural moments like one today, they've come and gone, and we've made, as humans, we've made so much noise over the past 2,000 years in history, so much noise, and needling through, threading through all of that noise are these stories. It's the Bible, and it's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And to me, who is admittedly a bit of a natural skeptic of things, of all things in life, um, it, is a, it is a sign of the truth of what we believe. I don't believe it's the sign. I personally don't believe that there is any single ace card that can be played to prove the existence of God or to prove the truth of the gospel. Rather, I believe that it is a combination, a culmination of many different things, personal experience, historical facts, many things that taken together become too much to at least discredit or ignore. You have to at least look at it. That said, we're going to look today at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And our thesis today, right, our big idea, what we're setting out to prove is this. Jesus tells us that to enter the kingdom of God, we must be a good neighbor, which is loving others as ourselves. But to love others as ourselves, we must first see our need for a good neighbor. Okay, so what we're setting out to prove in the next hopefully less than 40 minutes, um, is this. I'll say it again. Jesus tells us that to enter the kingdom of God, we must be a good neighbor, which is loving others as ourselves. But to love others, but to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must first see our need for a good neighbor. And the three points that we're going to cover, if you like kind of following an outline, we're going to cover the call to being a good neighbor, Okay, what is the call to being a good neighbor? What are the obstacles to fulfilling that call? What are the obstacles to being a good neighbor? And then finally, the third point is, what is a true example of a good neighbor? Okay, so the call to being a good neighbor, the obstacles to being a good neighbor, and the true example of a good neighbor. So, the call to being a good neighbor. Looking at this passage, you can break it down, the passage that we just read, <clears throat> you can break it down into two different parts. One is this conversation that is happening between a Jewish lawyer, someone very, very, very high up in the culture, right? A professional, a Jewish lawyer, and Jesus. They're having this conversation, and then a response to that conversation is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so think conversation happens, and then a response, Jesus responds to that conversation with the parable. So in giving context to the setup of this parable, R.C. Sproul states this, quote, <clears throat> A lawyer in Israel was a professional academic expert in the law of Moses, which included not only the laws that govern the religious community, but the laws that govern the state. Old Testament Israel was a theocracy, meaning that there is no distinction or division between church and state. We are told that the lawyer stood up and tested Jesus. We could read it another way. He came to challenge Jesus. He came to expose Jesus as naive and to reveal to the adoring public that Jesus was simply an amateur and that he, of course, was the professional. And so we have this back-and-forth conversation that starts with this lawyer coming up to Jesus in a crowd and saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's trying to play this chess game with Jesus. Essentially, he's asking, What must I do to achieve my own salvation? And Jesus, seeing that there's this game being played, he obliges and he plays the game. 
Don't play games with Jesus. He plays the game, and he does a very Aristotle-like move, and he answers a question with a question. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer rightfully answers from the Old Testament, the law of Moses, from Numbers and Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I can imagine in that moment you could have heard a pin drop. You, well, is probably on a hillside. So you wouldn't have heard the pin drop, but you get my drift. <laughs> I imagine there is just dead silence. It's absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Everyone knows there, Jesus, the lawyer, everyone listening, us listening, know the impossibility of fulfilling those commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The weight, the weight of that is crushing, absolutely crushing. And the lawyer knows this, and he continues to try to play chess with Jesus, and he's now in check. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? Right? He's trying to justify himself. Essentially, Jesus, be specific. Everyone knows that you can't ever love your neighbor as yourself just generally to everyone. Be specific. Give me the rules of the game to play. I'll play your game. I'll beat the game. I'll win, and I'll achieve my own self-salvation. And Jesus cosmically checkmates this lawyer by answering this question, okay? So the question that we have to keep in mind, what are we trying to answer? What must I do to achieve, to inherit eternal life? You must love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, fair enough. I'll play your game. Who is my neighbor? Jesus answers this way. This is his answer. Let's pick up in verse 30. I'm going to reread the parable. This is Jesus speaking. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, this is Jesus speaking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the lawyer replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So as a response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus gives us this odd story about a half-dead, bleeding, beaten, bleeding out man on the side of the road of a dangerous 18-mile stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho known as the Way of Blood because of all the murders and rob robberies that would happen there. He gives this example of this man, and a Samaritan comes, his enemy, an enemy of that man, a Samaritan, comes and has compassion and loves the man. And notice all of the active verbs in this parable. I don't know if this can be on the screen, but if not, just look in your Bibles or your app, whatever. Notice all of the active verbs. He saw him and took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, things of financial cost to the Samaritan. He put the man on his own donkey, meaning that he got off his donkey, his means of transportation and his means of safety 
on that 18-mile stretch. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out money and gave or paid the innkeeper. He told the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense, for any extra costs. So let's get right to it. We're trying to answer, what is the call to being a good neighbor? What is the call? And Before I say my next statement and unpack it for a few minutes, please don't hear it through the lens of politics or culture today, okay? Jesus is saying that if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must have compassion on people and do social work. I'll just sit and we'll just bask in that awkward silence for a moment. You may be thinking, that's a strong statement, bud. Like, you might be reading this a little bit out of context. Okay, I'll push back. We're trying to define social work from a biblical, biblical perspective, not from today's culture and politics and whatever preconceived notions you may have. Jesus just defined it in the parable of the Good Samaritans, all of those verbs of action. Let's further define it. Matthew 25, this is Jesus speaking in the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will, will, will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Notice all of the active verbs there, just like this parable of the Good Samaritan. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? How dare you accuse me of something I did not do? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into, into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, read Psalms, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read the major and minor prophets, read the New Testament, read James 1, read Luke 6, just a few chapters before the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Bible is full of stories and teaching about social work, about verbs of action, about loving the least of these, about loving those less than you and loving those different than you, which is often the hardest, and loving your enemies. Regarding the parable of the Good Samaritan, Tim Keller says this, quote, the unspoken assumption within most of us, in me, in American Christianity, is that compassion and social work is a good thing that's nice to do. Jesus said it's essential and required to follow Jesus. Listen to this, please. It's not this social work that gets us to heaven, 
He's saying that it's a sign of real faith, of God working in your life. If he's working in your life, social work, loving those less than you are the fruit of it. In other words, this is not a teaching of moralism. Do good works and you will achieve eternal life. Rather, those good works, your good Samaritaning, your social work is evidence of a life changed utterly and radically changed by the gospel. Okay? This is not, I'm not trying to teach a gospel of moralism. That would not be the gospel. Do this and you'll get this. Okay? It's much deeper than that. This social work is evidence of something internal, some fundamental change in our own life. And that's a life changed by the gospel. And the fruit of that life, the evidence of that life, is you doing social work, loving those around you, being a good neighbor. Okay, so... By the way, I prefaced the first service. Uh, first 20 or 25 minutes is a bit heavy. It will get lighter at the end, I promise. <laughs> okay, so we've looked at this command, uh, our command to love our neighbors. Okay, if the Bible commands us to love our neighbors, why is it so hard for me to do? Why is it so hard for me to love my neighbor, to love those different than me, to love my enemy? Why is it so hard? Let's look, point two, let's look at the obstacles to being a good neighbor, okay? And I want to identify two specific obstacles. One is going to be internal, right, which is deep idols within the human heart, and then external, which is going to be our view of God's grace on his entire world. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, um, Tim Keller explains that idols... We call these deep idols within our lives. They prevent us from living the life that Jesus offers and from doing the things we're called to do as Christians. In the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking about what's called deep idols. This is not my own intelligence or knowledge. This is coming from primarily, um, just for the next few minutes, looking at these idols, coming from a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's by Tim Keller. And actually, we have um, a few, it looks like we have probably maybe a dozen or two copies in the back. They're free. Um, if you want to just explore more, because we're going to be doing a quick, quick flyover of this, if you want to explore more, it's a phenomenal book. Phenomenal book. I would recommend picking it up, but only pick one up if you're going to read it. <laughs> so the quantities are limited. So these deep idols. Okay, these are deeper than what, we would, what would be considered surface idols. These are obvious sins, things that are evident to you and everyone around you, okay, that you know about. There's these deep underpinning four idols that, are, that go down to the very foundation of fallen man. And they're universal. They're universal idols, okay? You might not deal with every single one of these idols, but chances are you deal with at least one, or if you're lucky, you deal with two, like me. Um, let's define these deep idols, okay? These deep idols are motivational drives and temperaments made into absolutes. More important than anything, motivational drives or temperaments made into absolutes as a way to attain a desired life, okay? That is what we're identifying. That's what we're, we're defining these deep idols. Now let's, let's identify these four idols. There's four of them. Again, this is not my content, this part. Um, these four deep idols, the idol of power, okay? Idol of power, the absolute need for success, for influence, to be seen as a leader, to be seen, the idol of power. The idol of approval, the absolute need for affirmation, for love, for acceptance by others. The idol of comfort. 
the absolute need for privacy, for lack of stress, for avoidance of pain, for personal freedom. That's me. The idol of control, the absolute need for self-discipline, certainty in your surroundings or an environment, and for high standards. That's also me. I see these idols of comfort and control operating in my life. Each of these idols has a driving fear behind them or its own greatest nightmare, so to speak. The greatest nightmare for the idol of power is humiliation. Okay, if your idol is power, you fear being humiliated. The greatest nightmare for the idol of approval is rejection, rejection by others. The greatest nightmare for the idol of comfort is suffering or stress. That is a great nightmare for me. The greatest nightmare for the idol of control is uncertainty. Okay, so you may be thinking, all right, this is kind of mildly interesting. Thanks for the quick psychology tour. Uh, what does this have to do with the parable of the Good Samaritan? I would submit that it has everything to do with the parable of the Good Samaritan and why we don't do what we're called to do, why this is an obstacle in our life. These four deep idols that are native to every human heart, again, these are universal, deep within the DNA of fallen man, right? They drive our behaviors in life. They drive our thought patterns, our ways of thinking, our actions that we take or don't take, whether we see it, whether we acknowledge it, whether we accept it or not. And if these idols are present, right, they're going to present real obstacles to loving our neighbor. For the idol of comfort, it might cause personal suffering, financially, or it might just threaten your daily routine and take you out of your comfort zone. I've been there many times. For the idol of control, you might put yourself in a situation which just spins out of control. You don't know the outcome, and no specific outcome can be guaranteed. Right? Most of us, many of us, I can at least say for myself, fear that. Not knowing, not knowing the outcome of a situation, and oftentimes I'd rather not get my hands dirty because I don't know. It's often messy, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's often messy. For the idol of approval, if you love your neighbor that isn't like you, let's maybe think politically, morally, religiously, economically, you might be rejected by your peers, right? They might think that, oh, okay, you're just like them. For the idol of power, often loving your neighbor means putting yourself into a place of weakness and vulnerability, which is completely antithetical to someone whose idol is power, a weakness and vulnerability, a potential humiliation. And yet, despite these deep idols that are native to the human heart, the call to love our neighbor remains the same. And if we had extra time, we could look at how all four of these idols, power, approval, comfort, control, the Good Samaritan is faced with all four of these idols, you know, he still gets off of his donkey, still has compassion, and still loves his neighbor. Okay, so that's a little bit, a real quick, quick glance at an internal obstacle to loving our neighbor. Now I just want to look at an external obstacle. I think many of us, I would be the first in this line and the first to raise my hand, lack a true understanding of the depth of God's grace, not just his grace on his children, right? It's easy for me to see or to, to make sense of like God's having grace on me and maybe people like me and maybe other children of God. Sure, that's easy. But God's grace on his entire creation, this fallen world, the darkest parts of it, the darkest people in it, the people that are most not like you, that you most can't stand, his grace operating in his entire creation. 
We call that the doctrine of common grace. I'm told as a, I'm, I'm supposed to give a personal story to make sermons more interesting. So here's my personal story. Um, in 2016, I moved with my wife and our, at that time, our first, our first kid to, two, uh, to New York City um, for my work. We lived there from 2016 to 2020, came back in COVID. We were one of those, uh, I know, probably annoying people that had the New York tags and flooding all the cities. We were one of those people at the beginning of COVID, if you remember that. But. So we were there from 2016 to 2020, and uh, my commute to work was about an hour each way. Lived in Brooklyn, worked in Manhattan. A 10-minute bus ride, you go to the train or the subway, you go to the train, 40-minute train ride, um, about an hour each way, right? So you spend a lot of time commuting, and over time, you start seeing some familiar faces. And in New York City, just like any big city, uh, panhandling, you know, people asking for money is a very common thing. And so you'd kind of see some familiar faces, and I remember over a period of, I don't remember if it was weeks or months, watching this one guy who would come into the train, not every day, but very often, you know, our schedules were the same, and he'd come into the train and he'd kind of just, you know, popcorn and go to everyone, ask one, you know, ask for money and then go to the next train and do his thing. And I watched over a period of a few months him get uh, more aggressive and more vitriolic when he didn't get what he was asking for and made it known to people on the train and get more in people's faces. I remember um, sitting there watching him one morning or night, I don't remember, uh, but watching him on the train and judging him like often we always do and thinking like, man, this guy probably makes the same amount of money as I do, doesn't pay taxes, he abuses the system, the typical judgmental thoughts, you know. And I remember the, the Holy Spirit just convicting me in that moment. You know, judge not lest you be judged for the same measure in which I judge. I too will be judged by that same measure. Judge not. I remember feeling that conviction. But on top of that, that obvious conviction that we should not judge others, I felt like the Holy Spirit showing me something in that moment. I didn't grow up, likely, I didn't grow up on the same side of the tracks that this person grew up on. I didn't have the same parents or likely not having parents, lack of parents. I didn't experience the same traumas, the same abuses that, that he experienced. I wasn't born with the same personality, with the same genetic propensities. I wasn't born with possible um, chemical imbalances in the mind. There's an infinite number of variables that makes up any human being. There's no way that I could possibly fully understand any of you completely. I could maybe empathize in parts of your life, but I have not lived your life. You've not lived anyone else's life. There's an infinite number of variables that makes up someone and their ability or inability to make the right or wrong choices and to be in the place of life that they're in. I remember the Holy Spirit just impressing on me, like, why do you think, given that set of infinite variabilities, variables, that that person has been given in life, why do I think I would have the ability to make any better choice in life and to have any different outcome than the outcome that he's living in? It's the height of arrogance internally. I'm saying that for myself. And the idea here is that we need to see others through the lens of God's grace, see others with more charity. That Man, we are not that much different. 
I want you to take a moment and think about, really think about the kind of person, maybe it's a person, hopefully, I don't know, hopefully not, maybe the, the kind of person that you most can't stand, the stereotype of a person that you most can't stand, that you say like, okay, if this kind of person, all of them in the world, were just shipped off to an island in the Pacific with no forms of communication, the world would unequivocally be a better place. You may be right or wrong, that's beside the point. Really, that's beside the point. Think about that kind of person. Maybe this person is on the opposite extreme end of the political spectrum that you find yourself on. Maybe this person is lazy and jobless, and you're the hard worker. You're able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is a lie, by the way. Or maybe on the opposite end, you see the hard worker, the successful capitalist, as the person who has no compassion you know, on, on the people down and out, and you're the one who has compassion. You really, you really care for the poor. Maybe religiously, maybe you're a Christian, and they're not just non-Christians, but they're on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Maybe it's the kind of Hitlers or pedophiles or think of the worst kind of person, right? Hold that in your mind for a second. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable. Here's what we need to see, and the best analogy I can think of is when you're looking through a pair of binoculars, right, you have the left eye and the right eye, and you're kind of getting them all situated, and you're, you're dialing it in, right? You're getting those, that view into focus, and you're getting it less and less fuzzy, more and more clear, and you're a half click away. You're a half click away from perfect clarity, from perfectly in a focus. The difference between you and that worst kind of person in your head is essentially that half click. Compared to the difference between you and your maker, your creator, your lover, your savior, Jesus, there's an infinite chasm, an infinite uncrossable chasm between you and Jesus, no matter, no matter how good your works or how good your decision-making abilities are, there's an infinite chasm compared to you and the worst, the Hitlers of the world. And I know that's kind of hard and a little bit sour to, to taste to the mouth, but it's true. Jonathan Edwards, in his work, The Duty of Charity to the Poor, it's a small little work, he gives this series of excuses against charity, and I want you to think beyond just you know, again, we're probably thinking, okay, social work, charity, all this kind of stuff. You're thinking financially, right? That's, that's like our, our default way of thinking. Think, think deeper, more broadly than that. Think about that worst kind of person and loving that kind of person that you think would be better off on a Pacific island for the rest of their lives. About loving that kind of person. Jonathan Edwards, he's a, a 18th century American. He was an 18th century American preacher. He gives a series of arguments against charity to the poor. Argument. But you say they are not truly poor. I only have to help people when they are truly poor. Rebuttal. We should relieve our neighbors only in extreme destitution. That is not agreeable to the rule of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We get concerned about ourselves and do something, do something about our situation long before we become destitute. So you should love your neighbor as yourself. Argument. But they brought this trouble on themselves. I don't have to help when they brought it on themselves. Okay, we're thinking about our enemies in our, our enemy in our head, right? That kind of person. Rebuttal. But Christ loved you, pitied you, 
and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourself by your own folly. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? On, on Gospel Neighboring, Tim Keller says this, quote, You were to help even the people we hate the sight of. You were to help even people who have brought this on themselves. And you were to help to the place to where some of their burden falls on you. To some degree, you experience some of their difficulty because you were giving that heavily. That is gospel neighboring. And so, so far, we've covered that we're called to be a good neighbor. Yet, we're not good neighbors oftentimes. I'll speak for myself. I'm not a good neighbor most of the time. There's these obstacles, these deep idols that work inside of our life that drive our patterns of behavior, our patterns of thought, our actions or inactions. There's these deep internal obstacles and there's an external obstacle, which is our view of God's grace and his creation, including our enemies and the people we most can't stand. Okay, so, so far I feel like this has been a positive, uplifting, encouraging, lighthearted first message, right? I joke. Okay, it gets better. Let's go to the third point, the last point. I want to look at the true example of a good neighbor. I grew up a Christian, um, and reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, I interpreted it, I read it as, okay, you read the parable, all right, I'm called to be a Good Samaritan. Jesus tells me I have to be a Good Samaritan. I have to love my neighbor as myself. I have to get off my donkey and, you know, give someone money here and maybe buy a meal there, pat myself on the back, tithe here at church, pat my, like, do all the good samaritan things. And that's the way I interpreted this parable for much of my life. But when we read it like that, when I read it like that, we miss the most important, the most crucial part of this parable. There is this role reversal that happens in this parable that I've missed most of my life. You would think that if you were standing in that crowd and you're listening to this conversation with this high-up Jewish lawyer and Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Jesus gives us this, you know, this parable. You would think that logic would say that, that Jesus would put the lawyer in the shoes of the, of the Good Samaritan. Right? That's the way I've always read it. That would make rational sense. Yet there is this role reversal that happens. If you read commentaries of this parable, it's clearly understood that the man that's dying, that's bleeding out, that's on the side of the road, that's been beaten by robbers, needs a lifeline, he's a Jew. And so in this crazy role reversal that happens, he paints the lawyer, he paints the hearers today and back then, the hearers, he paints us as the one who's dying on the side of the road, who's bleeding out and who's been robbed. And it's Jesus who's the Good Samaritan. So in this, in, this, in this parable, not only that, he paints the lawyer as the one who's on the side of the road. Completely just against normal rationale, you would think. He's the one on the side of the road, and his peers, a Levite, a priest, come, pass him by, and it's his enemy a Samaritan. Jews, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. Racially, politically, they were bitter enemies. And Jesus knows this when he's telling this story. And he paints his enemy as the one 
who passes by and gets off of his donkey and saves the man. They're such enemies that, remember, at the end of the story, Jesus says, okay, lawyer, tell me, who was, who was a good neighbor? And the lawyer responds, the one, the one. He doesn't even say the Samaritan. That's how much they're enemies. He can't even mention the word Samaritan. And so if we read this the way it should read, we have an enemy coming and saving him. And this sounds a bit familiar to our own spiritual reality. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were enemies, God reconciled himself through his son. And so if we want to paint ourselves in this story, and we should as a hearer, Jesus understands that. That's the reason he gave these parables. We paint ourselves into the story not as a good Samaritan, but we paint ourselves in the story as the one who's dying, bleeding out on this murderous road called life. And when we paint ourselves into that and we feel, we feel that, then Jesus comes and he rescues us. And he becomes our good Samaritan. He is the hero of the story, not us. And thinking back on those uh, you can come up, Ryan. Thinking back on these four deep idols, again, uh, power, approval, comfort, and control, okay, that we talked about a few minutes ago. Jesus faced all of these idols that are so deep within humans, that are deep within me, right? Jesus faced all of these idols for us. The greatest fear of the idol of comfort is suffering. Jesus suffered immensely leading up to the cross, physically, emotionally, mentally, Spiritually, he suffered in every way for us. He got off of his donkey and he suffered. The greatest fear of the idol of control is uncertainty. He's so overwhelmed before he's crucified, he's sweating blood. And yes, it is medically possible. I do not recommend looking it up on Google unless you want to get lightheaded. But he's so overwhelmed before he's crucified, he's sweating blood. And he prays to the Father, if it's your will, please take this cup from me. The greatest fear of the idol of approval is rejection. He's rejected by all of his disciples, his closest friends, the Jews, his community of which he's one, and he's utterly and cosmically rejected by his own father. He's bleeding out on the cross, and one of the last things he says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the greatest fear of the idol of humiliation of, of the greatest fear of the idol of power is humiliation. He comes down from infinite power and bliss into the likeness of man. He lets that power go. He's stripped and beaten. He's despised by passerbys who say, yeah, he could save others, but he can't save himself. And on that same cross that he's bleeding out, where the soldiers nailed those nails to him, they also nail one extra sign at the top of the cross, mocking him, hail king of the Jews. There's your king. He gives up his power. He gives up his control. He gives up his comfort. He gives up his approval of his father for us. And here we see someone, the one true good neighbor, the good Samaritan that risks everything for us. The things that we so hold on to so deeply, the comfort that we look for, the control that we look for, the power that we look for, the approval that we look for, Jesus faces those, 
and he gives them up and he gives us comfort. He comforts us. He gives us approval because of what he's done, not because of what you've done, not because of your good Samaritan. He approves of us because of what he's done and he gives us power and he gives us the only control and certainty for those of us who hate uncertainty and need control. He gives us the only control and certainty that you could ever have in this life which is his presence, his love, his hope for eternity with him. See, the true good neighbor stoops to impossible lows, comes down from infinite bliss and power to the likeness of man, to bring us to impossible highs, to be with him forever. And it's once we receive this truth that I'm the one who's bleeding out. And I need a good neighbor. I need a good Samaritan to get off of his donkey to risk everything for me. It's once that happens, once that inner change happens of Jesus coming in and good Samaritaning you, then we have the power. It's then we have the power to go out and be a good Samaritan to others and to do social work the way that the Bible defines it, not the way that culture and politics define the way that the bible defines it it's much more the biblical version is much more costly in every way but let's let's keep the order correct we are not the hero of the story we're not the good samaritan the good samaritan is jesus accept him love him let him save you let him bandage your wounds and let him restore you and send you out and give you the power to go be a good Samaritan and to, and to literally perform real social justice, real social change, real loving our enemies the way we're called to. Let him do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the stories that you've given us that have stood the test of time over the thousands of years and that they still speak to us and that they've, they've spoken to now probably hundreds of millions of Christians and believers throughout these millennia. And they're still relevant today. God, thank you for that. And Lord, fill us, Lord. Fill us with you. Help us to see our need for you, that you are our good Samaritan, and that you get off your donkey and that you lay yourself out for us and give us the power and the ability to go be good Samaritans to those around us. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.